Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in a Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series, The Catechized Life, and today we're going to cover the sacraments and begin with baptism. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. Pastor Bestel, as we get going here today, we're picking up last week we had the bit of a transition episode from the Lord's Prayer into the second part of the catechism. You set that up really well for us. Encourage our listeners to go back and kind of catch that junction that happens here as we continue to progress through the catechisms and what they're teaching. And we talked about in that episode the means of grace. That's very common terminology that we use, especially in our Lutheran circles. And we were talking about the means of grace. You used the image of the water tank and the pipelines bringing the water, the fount of all Christ's righteousness to us. That's a beautiful image, one that I learned in my catechesis growing up as well. I also like to personally use one that uh, I think a lot of times, especially in our Amazon shopping, online shopping world and so forth, I like to use the image of I purchased something online, be it Amazon or something like that, right? And it is mine. It's what Christ has done on the cross for us, if you make that connection there. But how do I receive it? How does it come into my possession then? And then that's where the image of the UPS driver or United States Postal Service driver, whoever brings that package to me, and then it comes into my possession. That's how I receive it. And so just these images that help us understand that God has given gifts to his church that we may receive of his gifts that he has given to us by faith. And actually, they're very physical, tangible, and real. And of course, one of the other terms that we use then is sacraments. And so as we get going here today and get into, again, the second portion of the catechisms here, these are the sections on the sacraments. So I think it's important for us to talk about that term itself, sacrament. What does it convey? How do we understand it? How should it be rightly defined among us? And maybe even see some distinctions with others. So go ahead, Pastor Bestel, and talk about this term sacrament for us before we get into talking about them here in the catechisms. Sure thing, Sean. Last week when we talked about the term, the means of grace, such a loved term by us Lutherans, uh, usually when we talk about that term, means of grace, we are talking about the inclusive reality of word and sacraments together. Then we talk about this term sacrament, and the question very quickly comes up, well, who gets to define a sacrament? What is it? Where does it come from? And that's a really important question because there are actually, unfortunately, different answers from different church bodies. Uh, From the scriptures, we understand what the sacraments are based on a word in the Greek 
that is the word mustereon, from which we would get the word mystery. And that Greek word is used in a couple of really key places. One place is in 1 Timothy, where Paul reminds Timothy that we preach and teach regarding what is referred to in the phrase there in 1 Timothy 3 is the mystery of godliness. And that mystery of godliness that he describes there in 1 Timothy 3 is the mystery of the incarnation, right? The mystery that God has become man, that he has come down to earth, that he has become not only one of us for the sake of being one of us, but he has become one of us that he might deal with us and deal with us in uh, holy ways, in merciful ways, in life-giving ways. From that, you also see then the similarity between 1 Timothy 3, the mystery of godliness, and then 1 Corinthians 4, where St. Paul says, well, how should one regard us? And the us there is a reference to pastors, the office, the holy ministry. Remember earlier in that book, he's talking about Apollos and Cephas and Paul and how some were following each pastor as if you were following your own hero almost. And he says, no, 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 you're you're not following Apollos and you're not following Cephas and you're not following Paul, you're following Christ. And so if we're all following Christ, then how should one regard us pastors? And he says, one should regard us as bondservants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries. There's that word again in the Greek, the mysteria. And so if the mysteries are these means by which the incarnate God comes to us and serves his people and pours out the benefits of the cross to us, that which in the Greek is referred to as the mystery, in the Latin is the word sacramentum, the holy things. And in those sacred things of the sacramentum, there now we understand where in the English the word sacrament comes from. That still leaves the question open, well, who gets to define the sacrament then? We as Lutherans would say, well, Christ does. Christ defines the sacrament and Christ institutes the sacrament. And so when we talk about the sacraments, we talk about things that have basically three chief characteristics and definitions. One, is this thing that we're talking about, this holy thing that we're talking about, is it instituted by Christ? Secondly, does it convey the forgiveness of sins? Does it actually give to us the benefits that Christ achieved and secured on the cross and now seeks to pour out to us, as you said, whether it be from that online purchase now being delivered or the water tower coming not just to a house, but in a sense to the sanctuary, to the house of God. Uh, This is why we love the house of the Lord. And as the Psalm says, Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Here, God and his glory comes to serve his people through his word and his sacraments. And so it's got to be instituted by Christ. It's got to actually give and provide the forgiveness of sins that Christ has procured for us. And then sometimes a third characteristic is having some sort of a visible element. Where can I, because this is part of the reason that Christ gives the sacraments, is that he wants to comfort us to know that here I can go and know where Christ is at work. Here I can go and know that Christ is there to serve me. As we mentioned in the episode last week, Luther basically saying, if I want the forgiveness of sins, I do not run to the cross for Christ is no longer there. I do not run to the empty tomb either for Christ is no longer there anymore. Rather, I run to the word and therefore its sacraments because there is where Christ is to be found. With that then, 
sometimes that visible element becomes the deciding factor of this, where can Christ be found? What earthly, tangible thing has Christ attached himself to? Sometimes that becomes the determining factor when we talk about what potentially could be called the third sacrament. And that third sacrament, sometimes we refer to absolution. And so you see, for example, in the small catechism, baptism, absolution, and the Lord's Supper are listed as three individual ones. Interestingly, in the large catechism, absolution does not get its own discussion, but rather is sort of tied into the baptismal life and baptism. And so in the large catechism, you actually have baptism and the sacrament of the altar. So that question about the visible element, for those who would say, no, absolution should be counted as a sacrament. Some people would say, oh, well, you know, the visible element is the pastor declaring the forgiveness of sins. If I want that comfort, I can run to the pastor, confess my sins. He will proclaim and declare God's forgiveness. All right, fair enough. I think that's a very fair argument. But you can see where Lutherans don't have to argue over the number two or three, because we all understand these three chief elements. It's got to be instituted by Christ, not just that Christ recognized something as being good and beneficial, but that he instituted it for the life of his church. And we see that very clearly with each of the quote unquote three sacraments. And we see it in the small catechism. Remember the very first question that Luther asks with each of these is basically, well, what is it? And then the second follow-up question is, well, where is this written? Where do we find that? And so, for example, baptism, Matthew 28, absolution in Matthew 16, 18, and in John 20. And then with the sacrament of the altar, you've got Matthew 26, Luke 22, Mark 14, and 1 Corinthians 11, four different places for the sacrament of the altar. So very clearly, those three things are instituted by Christ. They're given, commanded, promised by Christ. And each of them, as you look at those very verses in which he talks about these things, each of them, he promises that they actually give the forgiveness of sins. That's very fundamentally important because we'll see in a minute how this differs then from, sadly, differs from other church bodies' views of of sacraments. And then, of course, as we said, that third visible element. Well, obviously, with baptism, it's water. Uh, Perhaps people would say with absolution, it's the spoken word of the pastor. Other people, by the way, who say, no, no, that doesn't count as a visible element, they might actually consider absolution to still be a gift, but they would consider it as part of the spoken word. And so word and sacraments, they would tie absolution into the word portion of that phrase, referring to the means of grace. Of course, the visible element for the sacrament of the altar is the bread and the wine. So you see where Lutherans get this understanding from. This is not a Lutheran ritual. It's not a Lutheran invention. It's not about Lutheran tradition or Lutheran pride. It's not about saying, hey, how can we differentiate ourselves from other church bodies? I know, let's have sacraments. No Lutheran hopefully would argue that because the scriptures have to be our foundational point. What does the Bible say is going on here? What do our confessions say is going on here? That's why we hold to the sacraments. We don't hold to the sacraments to be Lutheran. We hold to the sacraments to be followers of Christ because Christ is the one who gave the sacraments. Martin Luther didn't define the sacraments. The small catechism didn't define the sacraments or institute the sacraments. Christ instituted the sacraments. This is great joy. 
right? This is great comfort to know that God himself in the flesh thought nothing better to give us than his holy word and sacraments. You could almost imagine this picture of God sitting up in the heavenly places saying, gee, what great gift can I give my church? Aha, I will give them baptism. I will give them absolution. I will give them the sacrament of the altar. And God says, basically, in this image of him sitting up in the heavens thinking about this, in God's plans of all this, he says, and I know nothing better to give them. What a great comfort that is, that in all of God's infinite wisdom, in all of his desire to care for us and to bring us home to heaven, he says, I'm going to give them my word and I'm going to give them these sacraments. These tools, these instruments are going to care for my church perfectly. Now, in all of that great comfort, then, it is important for us to, in a sense, defend the genuine definition and truth of what the Bible says the sacraments are from, sadly, other church bodies that perhaps have a different view of sacraments. Uh, Certainly, when other people think of the term sacrament, the first other church body that comes up is the Roman Catholic Church. And maybe uh, our listeners know that Rome basically has seven sacraments, baptism, confession, confirmation, the Lord's Supper, marriage, ordination, and something called extreme unction, which people might know better as last rites. Now, when you think about these, we can say, you know, some of these we can agree with as Lutherans. We can agree with baptism, that baptism is certainly a sacrament. We can agree that the Lord's Supper is certainly a sacrament. We can agree, perhaps, that confession, absolution again, uh, might be a better way that we know it, has sacramental overtones. And the only question is, do you uh, abide by the idea of the visible element being the proclaiming pastor? But then what about these others? What about, for example, confirmation? Well, first of all, we ask the question, did Christ ever institute confirmation? Or is it a rite and tradition of good practice, uh, certainly a good practice, uh, but is it more of a rite and a tradition that the church invented and that the church brought about to say, yes, this is a good ritual way of confirming someone in the faith, bringing them into our membership and helping everyone see that this person does confess the same thing that we confess. Good salutary practice, but was it instituted by Christ? Or was it a rite that came up out of church practice? Also, does confirmation actually forgive sins? Or does it simply lead to the sacrament of the altar, which forgives sins? Right. So we could have some question marks about that one. We could have question marks about marriage as a sacrament. Now, this is an interesting one because it shows that there are certain things that God gives that are wonderful blessings that no Lutheran should ever despise it and say of the Roman Catholic understanding, oh, what a horrible thing that you would mark marriage as a gift of God. Of course, marriage is a gift of God. God institutes it in the Garden of Eden. We can say in a sense that Christ institutes it or gives his seal of approval when he talks about marriage in Matthew, in in Matthew 19 and in the Gospels. And so certainly we would say that marriage is given by God. Maybe we would even use the phrase instituted by Christ. But does marriage give the forgiveness of sin? See where that second item comes up quite importantly. 
certainly there are visible elements in marriage, right? There's a man and a wife and there's a ring and there are all these visible elements to it, but does it convey the forgiveness of sins? So this is why we would disagree and differ with the Roman Catholic Church as to whether or not this should be considered a sacrament. Ordination is an interesting one. In our confessions, for our listeners who know our confessions well, there's actually even a place in our confessions where the argument is made that, you know what, maybe someone could understand ordination as a sacrament if you understood that by it, a man is being made a pastor in order to declare God's forgiveness to the people. That it's really about the people receiving the forgiveness of sins, not that this man who's been ordained has all of a sudden this indelible character in which he is now closer to God. And so we actually make that, or have that discussion in our Book of Concord, but we would historically, as Lutherans say, no, ordination does not make the man a better man. He does not bring the man closer to God. It does not convey the forgiveness of sins for that individual. And secondly, we might even ask the question, you know, what about ordination? Was it instituted by Christ? Is it a church rite? Interestingly, in our Book of Concord, in the Augsburg Confession, Article 14, it talks about the idea of no one preaching or teaching in the pulpit and no one being a steward of the mysteries without a rightly ordered call. Certainly, language of ordination is part of our confessions, but the call from God through the congregation actually, I would argue, gets a little bit more weight in our confessional discussion of this. So ordination, even though Rome would consider it a sacrament, we would say, no, we just can't consider it a sacrament. It's certainly a good rite and practice within the church, good for good order, good for the clear conscience of the congregation, knowing who is our pastor. And yes, he was called here by God through us, but that doesn't make it one of the sacraments. Lastly, extreme unction, last rites. Uh, this is an interesting one that they take from the book of James. And Luther does a great job of pointing out where the Bible verse that they try to use to talk about this is a Bible verse that calls for the person to call the pastor to his side, that the pastor would pray over him that he might be healed. But according to the Roman Catholic understanding of extreme unction and giving last rites, you give it because the person's not going to be healed. The person's going to die. And then if the person doesn't die, apparently it wasn't extreme unction or last rites in hindsight. So you see where even the Bible verse that they try to use to define this one doesn't work quite right. If extreme unction is about giving a person last rites before he dies, but the Bible verse from James says that the person might be healed and raised up, well, then we got a little bit of an issue with it. Now, certainly as Lutherans, we do call the pastor to the hospital bed. And we do say, you know, pastor, proclaim God's forgiveness, right? And in my final hours, what greater comfort than having the proclamation of forgiveness of sins, having the proclamation and declaration and the reminder that I am a baptized child of God who does not need to fear death. If I'm able, I can even at this very last hour have the body and blood of Christ in the sacrament of the altar. And so by all means, as Lutherans, we cherish this gift that God gives by pastoral care at the bedside in giving us, again, word and sacraments. But that does not mean that extreme unction, as the Roman Catholic teaching teaches it, should be considered something that has been instituted by Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Now, that's the Roman Catholic view. I think the Protestant view is one that folks perhaps know less about because the sacraments perhaps don't take up as much discussion time in the Protestant church. 
if we're being fair to Calvin uh, and to Calvinism, they do hold to the understanding that something mysterious is going on, that maybe there's this covenantal mystery that is happening. But Calvin would sort of separate what is going on on earth with what is going on in heaven. And he would separate the earthly elements from the heavenly happenings. Well, that's not what Christ promises. Christ promises that we should find him right here at work, him and his Holy Spirit, as he promises, not thinking that here we just have a visible shadow of something that is going on elsewhere. For example, Calvin's view might actually be well described when he talks about the idea that in the sacrament of the altar, here below we eat bread and wine, and then our souls ascend into heaven to feast on Christ because he can't supposedly be present at every altar at the same time, which I always find to be a, sort of a funny explanation, considering that we're saying that Christ as true man is limited in being in heaven and on earth, and yet we as true men can feast on him on earth, and our souls can go to heaven and feast on him there. That, to me, gives us more authority than it gives Christ. That doesn't make much sense. Uh, also, another great example of this Calvinist notion is actually in the C.S. Lewis books and then what were made movies. There's the book and the movie of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And if you remember that one, there's a scene in there in which the boy Eustace has become a dragon. He's been turned into a dragon. He's basically fallen into sin is sort of the undercurrents of it. And how is he saved from it? He's saved from it by being on this island and having water all around this island. And the water is present, but then we see Aslan the lion, who is supposed to be the Christ figure. Aslan the lion comes, and he, at least in the movie, he roars a great roar, and all of the dragon skin is peeled back, and the boy Eustace, which of course means just or justified, is now saved and is a boy again. But notice that in that image, water was never used. It never actually took part in this. It was just the lion roaring a great roar. Whereas in baptism, we say, no, Christ is at work in the water, not besides the water, but in the water. So you see where the Calvinist or the Protestant view of the sacraments, to their credit, they would say there is something mysterious about the sacraments. There is something of a covenantal sign about it, but they would not give it the efficacy, the working power that Christ promises. Then, of course, you get to the Baptist groups that we know of in our society around us who really see the sacraments more legalistically almost and see them as a good work that is done or as a memorial that is done in remembrance. And that memorial is basically what we do to prove that we're Christians. Now, just for the sake of time, notice that what we should say about all of this is that for what the church body's usefulness of the forgiveness of sins is, that has a determining factor on their usefulness of what the sacraments are all about, right? Because Lutherans cherish the scriptural promise of the forgiveness of sins, we cherish the sacraments. But as you get into these church bodies that either preach sort of a salvation by good works or a salvation by making my decision for Jesus, or a salvation by the fact that I'm a child of the covenant, I'm, I'm an elect, and Jesus died for the elect, but not for the unelect. As you get away from the forgiveness of sins, as your reason for salvation, as your 
comfort of salvation, as the bestowal of salvation, as you get away from the forgiveness of sins, you also get away from the true definition and joy of the sacrament. And sadly, as you get away from the forgiveness of sins and you get away from the sacrament, it's also symptomatic of getting away from Christ crucified as the heart and soul of our salvation. Christ dying for the sins of the whole world and bestowing that forgiveness upon all people through word and sacraments. And so there's an interesting connection there between the different church bodies' view of the sacraments and their view of the forgiveness of sins, and ultimately their view of Christ crucified. So now as we, as we understand that the other church bodies might have misunderstandings about the sacraments, we do have to be careful I would begin this discussion by saying we do have to be careful as Lutherans that we don't take so much joy in the idea of sacraments that we allow ourselves to define sacraments that aren't given by Christ very clearly and specifically. We have the sacraments that Christ has instituted very clearly, and we know that they convey the forgiveness of sins. And so we do have to be very careful, I think, about what I call pseudo-sacraments, and what I'm, gonna, what I'm about to say here, I don't want the hearer or the listener here to think that my goal here is just to sort of drop a bomb right in the middle of the conversation and then leave everyone in great turmoil and doubt and with a burdened conscience. Take what I'm about to say, listen to it, because I know that on this particular issue, I, among at least my fellow pastors that I'm aware of, I'm probably in the minority on this. And I say this very openly, that I think that we need to at least have a discussion on this so that everyone can have a very clear conscience. And up until now, in the last 50, 60 years, we haven't had much of a discussion on this. And I think it would be beneficial, not as dropping a bomb into the conversation, but if you will, let iron sharpen iron to at least have an open discussion about what potentially comes in as or is received as a pseudo-sacrament. So I'd encourage the hearer, listen to what I'm about to say, but then go to your pastor, not with a critical eye or critical ear as to what he's going to say, but just encourage him to talk openly about where did this practice come from? Is it a salutary rite and ritual and tradition? Is it something that actually has sacramental bestowal to it? Where did it come from? Because if we have this open discussion and dialogue, I think it's beneficial for the life of the church that we can all have a clear conscience about it. And here's the practice that I'm talking about. It's this idea of blessing. And specifically, and this is where I wrestle as a pastor, is specifically with the idea of saying, where did the blessing of children at the altar rail come from? Now, I know I'm in the minority here, and I don't, I don't want people to immediately you know, uh, turn off the radio and stop listening to Pastor Smith's great show, but I simply want us to understand this might be an example of where people take something that might be a good salutary tradition and give it a higher status as a form of a sacrament. Uh, in the life of the church, I don't see in the history of the church the blessing of the children as being something that comes into use and practice until the mid-20th century. I don't see anywhere in the scriptures or in the confessions in which Christ instituted it and which Luther actually confessed it or the confessions actually confess it. Now, certainly we can say right away, we know that Christ took the children up in his arms and blessed them. We absolutely, and yet we use that Bible verse for baptism. And so if a blessing of a child is a remembrance of baptism, great. 
But is a remembrance a sacrament or is it a ritual and practice that reminds children of what gifts are already theirs? Or are we bestowing something new and additional upon them? So by all means, Jesus took children up in his arms and blessed them. Wonderful. But Jesus, as the example, does not institute something. Jesus' command institutes something. And we see that very clearly when we get to the words on baptism, where it's included in God's command. So where does Jesus command his pastors to take children up in their arms and bless them? This is an interesting question. Because if we're just going by Jesus, the example setter, then it's up for us as pastors to go try and walk on water and see what happens. Uh, It's not going to end up too well. But by all means, Jesus took children up in his arms and blessed them. And we should let the children know that by all means, Jesus loves you. Jesus has baptized you. Jesus calls you his own. The question for me is, have we raised this up in our children's mindset to be something more, almost a sacrament, if you will, so that when they come forward to the altar rail, they are receiving something while their parents are receiving something else. Now, there are some in our church body who would argue that this actually does bestow something upon the recipient, in which case I would say, well, wait a second, if this is bestowing something separate from the Lord's Supper upon the recipient, then why aren't we also giving it to the recipient of the Lord's Supper? If it's not giving us the same benefit, but a different benefit of the Lord's Supper, then why shouldn't the recipient of the sacrament of the altar also receive it? But if it's not actually bestowing something, then do we need to be doing this at the altar rail? Could we do, be doing this, for example, when the child comes out of church? Could the pastor not put his hand on the child's shoulder and say, God, keep you in your baptism? Wouldn't that be an, an appropriate time, which still teaches the child then to look forward to the sacrament of the altar and to ask, what does this mean? And to eagerly anticipate it rather than, in a sense, be appeased by having their own sort of pseudo-sacrament at the time that their parents are receiving the host of Christ's body and, and blood. So you see where this type of an issue, and I don't mean to say at all that what is being done is quote-unquote wrong. Pastor Smith, I know that you and I practice differently on this, and we can have our varying practices and still have a very clear conscience about people coming to us and saying, well, why do we do this? Or in my case, my members come to me and say, well, Pastor, why don't we do this? We don't actually bless children at the altar. I'm happy to remind them of their baptism at the end of the church service. But I would point out this. We do bless children at the exact same time we bless everyone else. And that's with the words of the benediction. When God said to his people, when you are going to bless the people, say this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's just as much for the child. That's just as much for the baptized who hasn't yet been instructed in the sacrament of the altar. That's just as much for them as it is for everyone else in the sanctuary. And so I personally would rather stick with the institution and command of Christ and of God and say, look, child, you are a baptized child who has the blessing of God in the benediction rather than have a ritual and practice that might not have the church history and the confessional definition and the scriptural support that many assume 
that it has. Now, I know that that's sort of throwing a hand grenade in there. And so, Pastor Smith, I'd certainly want to hear your comments on it. Uh, I simply want to point out that this good, right, joyful understanding, even in these good intentions, sometimes we can raise things up to a level of pseudo-sacrament that actually waters down the gifts that Christ has actually given us and distracts us from the gifts Christ has actually given us. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, absolution, the benediction, and distracts us from that with something invented by the church. So I, again, I say that, I want the hearer to go to your own pastor and talk about it. But Pastor Smith, I'd also love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I certainly, you and I talked about this before we went on the show today, because in your show notes that you send to me as we prepare for the show, you had mentioned and brought this up. And I said, I think this is a healthy place for us to show that we can have differing practice here, but encourage the very thing that you're encouraging us to do and have healthy conversation about this as iron sharpens iron. And as brothers, we can still hold respect for one another, that our rites and ceremonies may not be exactly the same in this terms and practice. And yet, I think you hit the nail on the head there that when I come at it, I come at it as Christ certainly blesses children. And of course, that does point us to baptism. And just in general, I think that you can look at scripture and see that blessing Another one that you can use and at times has fallen out of use in the Lutheran church, specifically because as we talked about on this show before, things do get ascribed to it wrongly. And so we kind of try to hold the tension by saying, well, if you're getting a wrong understanding that's leading away from the gospel, then we won't do it for that particular purpose. And we've talked about that on this show before with various practices, but just a blessing in the hospital with oil, right? to call to remembrance baptism and of course comes from James as well which you cited earlier that you know not quite in the extreme unction way that the Roman Catholics do it obviously but it, it is certainly a scriptural blessing and so that's where I come at it from in terms of blessing the children is we can ascribe this blessing and then it's just up to me to make sure that we're teaching rightly and that it be rightly understood I agree with you it's a danger and for my personal pastoral practice I use the blessing with oil when I make hospital visits and things of that nature as well. I understand why it fell out of use, as I said already, just simply because wrong understandings have crept up that have led away from that. And if they were in danger of that when it comes to blessing children at the communion rail, then I wholeheartedly agree we need to reevaluate that. And are there maybe other practices that we could do? You know, a lot of our Lutheran sanctuaries have uh, and gradually are being restored as well have baptismal fonts right at the entrance as you come into the sanctuary. And the, we talked on this show again, just how we arrange our worship spaces and the things that that confesses. And what a beautiful thing that as you greet people as they head out, that you greet and bless not only the children, but you can bless everyone. And it just serves as that beautiful reminder. There's lots of things that we could consider there. And so I do think that it's a healthy conversation. And we certainly want to take a look at what does scripture teach us? What do our confessions convey and what is being confessed and what we're doing? Evaluate it. And if we're in danger of creating something that's almost another sacrament, then we've gone astray and we've gone beyond what scripture and our confessions give to us. And especially most dangerous there is what scripture gives to us, what Christ gives to us to be these great comforts. And I think it's interesting that at least with communion and children, 
that the history of the practice of closed communion, which we do practice in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, even the children who did not yet receive the Lord's Supper in the early church were sent out and the doors were closed. That's where we get the term closed communion, right? And so I do think it's interesting that, as you pointed out, it doesn't have a long history of even bringing children forward to the communion rail. But then it also points to something else that perhaps at times, even in our LCMS circles, has kind of become another sacrament, almost like the Roman Catholics. And that's the whole thing around the rite of confirmation and what that all entails. And so we're certainly in danger of a whole lot of things constantly. Our our hearts are idol factories and we have sinful understandings and we ascribe things and we look for comfort in things that don't promise it when the promises of God are there and simple and beautiful. And, and so we just need a right understanding of those. And so I thank you for bringing up the conversation. So much more we could say on this. Uh, we're a little over here. We need to take a break. So we're going to go ahead and take that break here and we'll have a shorter second half. But again, thought it was good to get that conversation in and very well laid out what it is we're talking about a sacrament. When we come back from break, we'll talk about the sacrament of baptism specifically. And so that's with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUL. Greetings, saints of our Lord. This is Pastor Brady Fennern of Thy Strong Word. I'm excited to announce our new study on the book of Hebrews. Although we do not know the author, we do know the purpose, that the hearers would know that in these last days, God speaks to us by his Son. This month, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So join us as we study the living and active word, for the gifts are ready, ready for you. Welcome back to Concord Matters for our series, The Catechized Life, with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel, and I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith. And sorry we ran a little long there in the first half of the show, a little more than a half today, but I thought that was an important conversation. And as a matter of fact, Pastor Bestel and I in the break continued our conversation. We could probably do a whole episode on just how we think about these things in the church. And, and certainly we do that on this show quite a lot. But we do want to get into the first sacrament in our catechisms that is described and taught there for us, and that's the sacrament of holy baptism. And so we're going to cover that here in the second segment of the show today. So I'm going to go ahead and read this from Luther's small catechism under the sacrament of holy baptism. And this is the first part of baptism. And the question is, what is baptism? Baptism is not just plain water, but it is the water included in God's command and combined with God's word, which is that word of God. Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Matthew, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And of course, that comes from Matthew 28, verse 19. All right, Pastor Bestel, go ahead and give us the beginning of our catechesis lesson here on the sacrament of holy baptism as it pertains to this first part. Okay, what is baptism? 
I think the first thing to point out with that question is that the very first thing Luther does is talk about what are the components of it, right? So we might, uh, as Lutherans and as Bible-loving people, we might first want to say, oh, baptism is a lavish washing away of sins. And that's true, but that's really the benefit of baptism. In this question, what is it? Luther's really talking about what are what are the components? What is the makeup? What is this thing all about? We'll get to the benefits with the next question. But this first question, what is it? When I'm trying to explain baptism to someone who perhaps doesn't know the sacraments all that well, one of the phrases that I remind people of is the phrase that this might be considered the sacrament of entrance. And that sort of, again, gets to the benefits of baptism, but it also ties in well to what you were talking about before the break, Sean, when, when you said, you know, a great practice that is being revived in the church is to have the font at the entrance to the sanctuary so that all people may walk by that and know that they are entering through their baptism into this divine hour. At the congregation I serve at Calvary and Elgin, we have that font now at the entrance and people love having it there. Whether old, young, uh, new Lutheran, longtime Lutheran, they love that reminder of walking past that font because baptism is this great gift of God. So in this first question, what is it? How do we start to learn about the components to know that this is a great gift of God? Well, when Luther starts, he says, baptism is not just plain water. And I had someone who knows the German much better than I do. I unfortunately do not know much of the German. Uh, and so I asked a, a friend of mine who's a pastor, I said, well, you know, what does he mean there? Is the connotation that it is more than plain water or that there's something in addition to plain water, right? It's not just plain water. Well, that could mean two things. That could mean on the one hand, no, 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 it's, it's better than plain water, or it could mean it's something in addition to plain water. And he said in the German, really what Luther is saying there is that, yes, it's plain water, but it's not just that, okay? And that's really important for us to keep in mind. And this, again, gets to how comforting this is when I use that image in the last half hour about the idea of God sitting in the heavens and instituting and designing these gifts and saying, you know, with baptism, I'm going to use the most abundant resource in the whole world. I'm going to use water. And with this great gift, it's going to be found in the simplest of ways with just plain water. And yet it's not just plain water, not because it's somehow a holy water. Certainly, uh, the Roman Catholic Church has made something about this idea of holy water. I was uh, just on an online church supply warehouse store today and noticed that, hey, you can still buy your holy water uh, in little bottles for $5.99. And I always sort of joke about that. And I say, now, wait a second. If this is actually a holy thing, a holy water, and it's not just plain water, if it's actually holy, then shouldn't the church one be generous and give it freely because this is God's gift to people? Or if you're going to sell it, don't sell it for five bucks. If it's holy, it's worth a heck of a lot more than that, right? Sell it for a thousand dollars or $10,000 if it's actually holy. But no, you know, this, this whole notion of the idea of holy water tries to make something of the essence of water that isn't of the essence of water. And Luther is saying here, on the one hand, you're using plain water. And this is great comfort. A pastor can run into a hospital if the baby is in an emergency situation and he can grab any water 
out of a water bottle, out of the tap. It doesn't matter, right? It doesn't have to be the very highest brand of bottled water. It can be, you know, your local convenience store bottled water. It doesn't even have to be bottled water. It can just be water from the tap. And if you recall, when John was baptizing in the Jordan River, the Jordan River wasn't exactly known for being the cleanest of rivers, right? Remember that uh, occasion in the Old Testament where the prophet sent Naaman to the Jordan to wash in the Jordan. He said, no, wait a second here. I got better waters than this in my, or better rivers than this in my homeland. So on the one hand, it is plain water. And that in and of itself shows just how thoughtful God is toward us sinners, that he would not make it a water that is hard to find, but that he would make it the most abundant and available earthly material, just like the visible element of the Lord's Supper, right? What food in all of the earth is more abundant than bread? And really, when you think about it, especially 2,000 years ago, what drink is more available in all the earth than wine? Thankfully, he didn't say, you know, cow's milk or soda or something like that, that that some parts of the world don't have, but rather bread and wine, and here speaking specifically regarding baptism, just plain water. And yet the catechism says, no, 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 it's not just plain water because the water has been included in God's command. Now, this is a word sometimes that trips people up because we want to defend against those Christians who incorrectly teach that baptism is some sort of a legalism, uh, some sort of a legal hoop to jump through. And they say, well, if you believe that baptism saves, then you believe in a salvation by works because baptism is simply a work commanded. But remember who God is commanding it to. When God gives this command, he's commanding it to the church to bestow upon all of the beneficiaries. It's not a command to the beneficiary. It's a command to the church and to the church's ministers, right? When we read Matthew 28, sadly, I think Matthew 28 has been been misused a little bit, to be honest, in the last uh, century, century and a half, and that everyone immediately goes to this idea of the Great Commission and then thinks of themselves as an individual Christian who has this command as an individual Christian to go labor for the growth of the kingdom of God. But Matthew 28 is gospel. And Matthew 28 is Jesus saying to the church and to her ministers, this gift I am going to give for the benefit of all nations. And that's how the hearer should hear that. You are the beneficiary of Jesus saying to his disciples, go find them, go find sinners in every corner of the world and give them this great benefit. Let them benefit from this. That's the command element of this, not this great commission idea. And, you know, think of how our Book of Concord uses Matthew 28. Look that up in the index sometimes. It never references this idea of great commission. It talks about the persons of the Holy Trinity. It talks about baptism. It talks about the office of the Holy Ministry. It does not talk about this idea of a great commission in which somebody should feel sort of a burdened conscience in saying, I better be doing enough to spread the gospel. Certainly, there are plenty of passages that exhort us to confess the faith and to be ready in season and out of season and to always be ready to give an account for the hope that is within us. There are plenty of passages that talk about that. But the command that God gives here is not to burden the individual or to burden the beneficiary, but rather he gives a command to the church 
He gives a command to the church's pastors. He even gives a command to the parents, right? It's not the parents' choice to say, you know, God has blessed me with this great gift of a child, and now I'm going to keep this child away from the blessings that God has for the child. The child doesn't belong to you, mom and dad. The child belongs to God. And therefore, if God wants the child to benefit, then the command is to you as mom and dad to make sure that that child gets the benefit. It's not unlike the Old Testament example of circumcision. Circumcision was a command to the parents. And yet, what did the eight-day-old child get out of it? The eight-day-old child got the benefit of now being considered a part of the family and the line of the covenant, right? It was actually benefit for the child, even though we're thankful that we get the circumcision made without hands because that one is in the Old Testament was far more painful. But in the New Testament circumcision, as Paul speaks of it, the one made without hands, the child, the beneficiary, has this great gift. And yet the command that God gives then is a command to share this gift with all the world, a command to the church as the whole church, to the priesthood of all believers, not as an individual, each individual priest, but as the priesthood of all believers, us having this united confession that says, here is God's great benefit that he wants to give to all people. Okay, And so God gives this command, but notice that Luther says it's the water included in God's command because the command is to be given for the benefit of the beneficiary, and it's combined with God's word, combined in the sense that the two are working together, right? That you don't say, I have this water here on earth and the word is working up in heaven, but rather they are combined in function, in purpose, in dwelling, if you will, so that we can know that as we watch that water be poured over the child's head, we can know that God's benefits are being poured over the child's head. In fact, that the Holy Spirit right there and then, right? Doesn't Peter say in Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is for you and your children all who are far off. Uh, And the, the same thing in the alternate baptismal rite in the Lutheran agenda, which is Luther's baptismal rite. It's the baptismal rite that we use in our congregation. There's sort of that little mini exorcism by which he says, depart unclean spirit and make room for the Holy Spirit. Well, what do you mean make room for him? Where does he come? He comes as the water is poured over the child's head because this is what it means that the water is included in God's command and it's combined with the word. Without the water, it's proclamation. This idea that God desires to save all people is great proclamation. It's gospel-sounding words, but without the water, it's no baptism. And at the same time, without the word, as Luther says, it's simply a bathkeeper's bath. It's just an earthly bath. But with God's word, because as we said in the last episode, the word makes the sacrament, right? Everything depends upon the efficacy of God's word, the authority of God's word, the clear promise of God's word, that Christ says, here is where I can be found at work. And with this water, you can see me working. Even if it has to be the eyes of faith seeing it, nevertheless, that doesn't make it not be objectively true. It doesn't mean that faith is making it up, but rather the eyes of faith see it specifically because faith knows that what God has promised, God delivers on. And so, as the Word makes the sacrament, then the Word and the sacrament combine together 
included in God's command for the outpouring for the benefit of everybody, and combined with God's word, this now is at work and we are actually watching it happen. What a beautiful reality. In our congregation, we have two services and often, just because it's difficult for new moms and dads to be ready early in the morning, often the uh, baptism will be at the beginning of the 1030 service. And because the font is in the back of the sanctuary, is in the entrance of the sanctuary, a lot of people who went to first service and stayed for Bible study, and, and thanks be to God, we have a wonderfully attended Bible study at Calvary. We'll have all of these people standing in the narthex, standing in the back of the church, just so that they can be there to watch the baptism before they go home because they've already been at the eight o'clock service. But we'll have 40, 50 people standing sort of back in the background behind the font, in addition to the folks that are staying for the second service, because everyone realizes as they've been taught, as the scriptures say, this is God at work. This is exactly what baptism is. It's plain water, and yet it's not just plain water. It is the water included in God's command combined with God's word. And think of how this concept is taught in the scriptures. John chapter three, right? When Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the spirit, water with the spirit together, there is baptism. Matthew 28, go therefore making disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. I sort of wish, and I understand why Luther sort of cut off Matthew 28 there in the catechism and just focused on the act of baptism rather than all of the baptismal life that flows from it, because the first question is, what is the act of baptism? And yet baptism is never, as we get into the benefits next time, baptism is never about saying, let me just do this act and then leave you as a new child of God to now raise yourself and feed yourself and sustain yourself. But baptism of the infant always supposes that you're going to go on with Matthew 28 and you're going to teach, baptizing them and teaching, right? And so the water and the word work together in that very moment. And then the Holy Spirit continues on and with the continued working of the word in teaching the baptized all of the benefit and joys of their baptism. Another one, Ephesians chapter five, where it says that Christ cleansed his church with the washing of water and the word. It's very clear for us. Of course, we have the Old Testament examples, right? The types of baptism, the parting of the Red Sea, the flood, and Noah and the family being delivered in that. And that, and therefore, you get what is referred to as the flood prayer, that beautiful prayer of Luther's in the baptismal rite. And you could spend an entire hour just unpacking the beauty of the theology of that prayer. So in all of these things, we see that God is so gracious, even before we get to the benefits of baptism, which we'll get to next hour. Nevertheless, just in what baptism is, God is so mindful of us sinners that he combines his word to the simplest element in all of creation. And he says, this is how generous I am with the salvation that Christ has procured on the cross. I want it for all people, and I will make this water abundantly available, and wherever you in faith, connect it with my word and include it in the command that I've given, then by all means, what prevents anyone from baptism as the Ethiopian said, right? This is for us and for our children and for all who are far off. Absolutely beautiful to talk about baptism. And we'll continue talking next week about the sacrament of holy baptism, moving into the benefits and then also 
How can water do such great things? And then what does such baptizing with water indicate? Just wonderful to talk about baptism with you today. Thank you so much. That is our catechist, Pastor Mark Vestal, for this series, The Catechized Life. And I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. 